Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you have given us this day all his blessings and all your promises to us which are true every day and your mercies which are new every morning. We thank you for the comfort that your word gives to us and the way that your word also puts words on our own lips with which to draw near to you. So as we study uh, your word today, give us lips that will uh, sing your praises and proclaim your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 121, um, uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills, very, very well known, uh, and justly so. And if you look up the uh, the top of the psalm, you will have a heading which says a song of ascents, which is a somewhat unusual phrase. We don't usually talk about ascents, and certainly not songs of ascents. But uh, it belongs to a group of psalms, uh, beginning with Psalm 120, and there are 15 of them all together. So Psalms 120 and 134 all of them in English Bibles are termed songs of ascents. Um, and they have some things in common and others not. So each of them should be really read in its own, on its own terms. But if you just flick through those pages, to, uh, the next couple of pages, you will see that they're all quite short, first of all. Um, So uh, in, in, if you look at verse numbers, the, the longest one is 10 verses long and the shortest is only three verses long. So they're all very short psalms, 120 to 134. Um, <clears throat> uh, they are mostly, not in the exclusive, but they're mostly spoken of in the first person, uh, singular, Sometimes first person plural as well, and they. But um, the theme or the the sub subject of the psalms they they vary. So Psalm one hundred and twenty uh, is a is a, song, a psalm of lament in distress. Psalm one hundred and twenty one is a psalm of trust in the Lord. Psalm one hundred and twenty two. I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." So they. The themes and the and the subject matter, if you like, they vary from psalm to psalm. So they don't they're not like a of 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 one particular subject matter, but nevertheless they are grouped together. Now the question then is, what is exact? What exactly is a psalm of ascents, or should it even be translated as a psalm of ascents? And on this there are different opinions. So I this morning I was reading through various uh, books on the subject matter, or not, not not cover to cover, obviously, but just looking at this question and. They didn't agree with each other. And there are four general theories because the, the Hebrew word <coughs> that it translates is refers to uh, going up in, in, in a particular uh, kind of generally speaking. But of course, going up can mean different things. So, for example, in this uh, country, there are three cities to which you always go up regardless of the direction you travel from. You always go up to London. You never go down. You always go up to Cambridge and you always go up to Oxford. And if you're in England, you always go up to Scotland uh, as well. And of course, the question is, if you're in Cambridge and you go from Cambridge to London, do you go up or do you go down? Since you go up uh, to Cambridge always. And if you're 
you know, if you're from Cambridge, you'll say, well, I go down to London. That's the only exception, because you're already up, because you're in Cambridge or Oxford. Uh, so there's certain places you always go up to, regardless of whether you travel up the hill or down the hill, as it were. Um, and likewise, uh, you know, you, you say, we, we go up to places sometimes. You go up to the door. Mm. And likewise, uh, if you're speaking Hebrew, there are certain places you always go up to as well. So it's not just... Says. No, as in Hebrew, particular places. Oh, yeah, um, regardless of whether you're traveling uphill or downhill. Um, <clears throat> and so the fact that it, it's, it's a song of up and goings up in itself doesn't yet tell us everything we need to know. And, but uh, the uh, Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation, translated it in, in a way that could, could actually mean kind of uh, steps or stairs. The means by which you go up. Um, so you've got the um, um, and and so looking at these sort of facts together, there are these are the four different theories that are uh, that have been put forward. One is that this is a song of the returning exiles. So you go up to the promised land. So they are because in one place in Ezra, the same verb is used about the return of the exiles. Um, and so the idea is that as the as the exiles return from Babylon, these the, these are kind of songs that they sang, or there were songs written either for the journey or as in response to the journey of returning to the Promised Land. And in some ways, if you think of Psalm one hundred and twenty-two, let's you know, I was glad when they said to me, "Let us go to the house of the Lord." That kind of makes sense. But if you look at the very first of them, he says, "In my distress, I called to the Lord, and He answered me." He said, "Okay, that looks that looks like possibly like I were in distress in exile." But if you look at the rest of them, um, they're not necessarily. Some of them are. Some of them could be. Some of them could might not be. It's not really that in itself doesn't necessarily. It doesn't kind of the theme doesn't necessarily um, make that much sense to for all of them. Um, another possibility is that they are pilgrim songs about going up to Jerusalem. So these are people who are going for the, we have the pilgrim festivals, the festivals at which people travel to Jerusalem, so uh, Passover, uh, for example, Pentecost, uh, a Feast of Booths. You know, these, when you, these certain festivals a few times a year when people are expected to go up to Jerusalem, like Jesus did at you know, age 12 with his parents. And so these would be pilgrim songs. And pilgrim songs, of course, are a real thing. Think of the hymn, Glory Be to Jesus, who in bitter pains. That, that was originally a pilgrim song, and it was associated with pilgrimage to Rome. The idea is that you're walking to Rome, and when you first spot the spires of the churches, you stop and you sing, and that's what they sang. It's an Italian pilgrim song. Um, so this would be a song of a sense, which again... Uh, which is probably the most common opinion among scholars now, that these are pilgrim songs going up to Jerusalem. Um, again, it's, a bit, it's not a perfect fit. If you look at, if you look at all the psalms, not all of them, uh, not all of them seem to kind of necessarily kind of fit neatly into this idea of pilgrimage. Psalm 130, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. How is that a pilgrimage song? But nevertheless, that is the that is the most uh, commonly viewed, um, accepted viewpoint now. There are two other possibilities. 
um, and this is a one that has uh, used to be quite a popular explanation, is based on, partly based on uh, the Jewish Talmud. Now, the Talmud is a collection of rabbinical writings. They're post-New Testament, but collections of rabbinical explanations of the Bible. And in, in there, we have all kinds of... So it's just a collection of what different rabbis have said. And in there, we have this view that... Uh, this uh, claim that the temple in Jerusalem had, and depending on which rabbi, either between the court of Israel and the holy place, which is where the priests go, or between the holy place and the holy of holies, 15 steps. 15 steps. And so... Um, and the association was made, that, yeah, and and it was said that the, the the priests would stand on those steps and blow their trumpets, and the choir would sing. And so this could be, this could be literally gradual psalms. You know, we have in the liturgy we have the gradual, mm-hmm. comes from the Latin word gradus, which gives mm-hmm. us the words you know gradual, step by step, stepwise. Mm-hmm. So gradus is a step. So the gradual psalm, we have a gradual psalm because what used to be the custom in the church for a long, long time was that uh, you'd have a one reader for the epistle and another reader for the gospel. And while the reader of the epistle returns to his seat and the reader of the gospel then goes up to read the gospel, you have a gap. And you don't want, you know, we don't want to just kind of have people just watching, you know, twiddling their thumbs waiting for this. And so the gap was filled with the cantor, the leader, leader of the choir, going on the steps, standing on the steps of the, you know, leading up to the altar and singing a psalm from there. So it's a sung, psalm sung from the steps, so it's the gradual psalm. And so this, you know, the one suggestion is that these are gradual psalms. These are the kind of psalms that would be sung, would be sung from the steps of the altar uh, during worship. And a fourth theory Entirely different, which is that it has to do with the, the, the idea is, is nothing to do with the circumstances of the singing, whether it's returning from exile or going on pilgrimage or standing on the steps, but rather is a description of how these psalms are actually written. So if you look at uh, Psalm 121, you say, I lift my eyes to the hills for where does my help come from? Verse 2, my help come from, it's like another step. It takes this idea, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Verse 3, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Verse 4, behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So this is parallelism. It's known as parallelism, where, which is quite common in Hebrew poetry, where you say one thing and then you say the same thing again, but on the second repetition you amplify it. It's like you're building it. You're going up steps. So the theory is that it's a literary term. This is a, these are the kind of stepwise psalms in, in, the, in the way that they are written. Um, Psalm 121 is the best example of that. Uh, uh, but again, if you go through all 15 psalms, some of them, in some of them it's really obvious, others, well, it's not really uh, all that obvious that that's how it is really working. Um, like Psalm 134, which is the shortest of them. It's also called Psalm of a Song of Ascents. Come, bless the Lord, you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. It's not, you don't, you got the idea of bless, 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 but it's not really building up, as it were. So, what's the conclusion? We don't know. It's the conclusion. We're not sure. Um, as I said, the most common view is that these are songs of pilgrimage. All we really need to know is that that's what they're called, and this is like a collection of psalms 
This is the fifth book of Psalms. Remember, the Psalms are divided into five books. And this is that we are now in the fifth, the final book of the Psalms. And within the fifth book of Psalms, we have a collection of Psalms. And they all have in common this heading. And the fact that they're very short, they are, uh, each of them has a kind of one, one particular clear theme. So the first psalm is about God, Lord answering me in my distress. Second one is about God being my helper. Uh, the next one is about all about the blessings of going to the, to the temple in Jerusalem and so on. And so that's, that's what we have. And, and we kind of have to be a little bit uncertain, be happy to be a little bit uncertain about as to why they're called that. In a sense, it doesn't matter. What matters is what the psalm says, not. But anyway, I thought I'd just give you that little bit of background because you've got these songs of ascents, and they are called ascents rather than ascent, which is in itself is a little bit peculiar. Hence the suggestion there could be the song of the steps. Or could, of course, be song of ascents in the sense of every time you go up to. My personal view, um, I'm kind of... I'm, I'm uh, equally uh, undecided, but divided between options um, two, three, and four. So pilgrimage, or a sound from the steps, or the idea that they're kind of this, uh, that it's really referring to the way that these are written. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know when they were written, but they're almost certainly uh, come from a late period in the Old Testament after the exile, um, partly because of the theme. But that being the case, that that would, if that's the case, that would actually militate against, for example, this being returned from exile sounds because when they returned from exile, there was no temple. The whole point is they returned, and one of the jobs they had was to rebuild the temple. And so, why would you sing? I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord, when there was no house of the Lord to go into. In fact, it was a return to a desolate city. Take that as as you may. You may have an opinion of your own, or not care uh, uh, quite freely as you like. But this is this is uh, the psalm. But this is our psalm for uh, next uh, Sunday. <coughs> um, the key point, of course, being what the so- a psalm actually says. It's a short psalm, like all of them. It's only eight verses. It may or may not occupy an hour and a half today. We might get have a shorter Bible study, depending on how much discussion we end up having over this. But <coughs> What I would like uh, to do uh, is simply uh, read through uh, the whole psalm. Now, before we, before we do, I would like you, insofar as you're able, see, as, as we read through, there are a couple of key words that keep, and uh, key ideas that keep being repeated, being kind of the thread that goes through the whole psalm. Um, see if, if we could begin, after we've read it, just the how much of that we can collect amongst ourselves. You know, what do you spot about as being the kind of the key themes that run as a thread through the psalm, key terms, key words, key phrases? So, uh, can we have a reader, please, for Psalm 121? Shall I? Thank you. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved, he, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. 
The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Thank you. So, what did you spot? It's the idea of the Lord always keeping his hand on Keep, us. yes. And keep. this keep, this keep, and we'll, we'll look yeah. at that. Uh, the word keep, or some version of it, uh, I counted one, two, three, four, five, six occurrences of mm. it in different forms. So we'll look at what exactly that word means. It's the, when I started studying Hebrew at university, it was the first word I learned. <laughs> but not for, not for theological reasons, it's because it's completely regular. So when you start first learning a language, you have to learn the regular words before you learn the irregular ones. Um, anything else? Do you spot any any other? It's uh, continually saying there's help there. Yes. So the the question the 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 heading, if you like, is help. You know what is, what is a source of help? Yes. We'll we'll look at the answers to what were the kind of the detailed themes mm-hmm. in as we come through it. But so just the 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 kind of broad broad themes. Uh, Carol, you have... uh, keep you from harm. Mm-hmm. Yes. So so there there one of the things is again harm, evil, um, mm-hmm. help. You know, if you need help, asking where does help come from, that suggests that that you are in need of help. So there is implicit in it all the time is a presence of danger. The presence of danger. God is addressed all the way through as Lord, Lord, and it's capital letters, meaning why is it in all capitals? Well, because it's it's God. It's but why? Sometimes the word Lord is written with a capital L. Sometimes it's in all capitals. Why is it written in all capitals? Can anyone remember? It's because the, when we have the word Lord with just a capital L, normal, nor, written normally, that translates the word uh, Adonai, which just means Lord or Master. When it's written in all capitals, it translates the name of God, Yahweh. Yeah. Um, and the reason it's written as Lord, as opposed to actually writing out the name of God, is partly because the pronunciation of that word is very uncertain. Because by the time vowels were added to Hebrew, the Hebrew doesn't use vowels. If you go to Israel and you read the newspaper, by the newspaper, all the words have just consonants. Okay, and you need to, it's, 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 it's a challenge for foreign learning, if you're learning as a foreign language, is, is you have to learn it well enough so you can, you know which word it is when you, when it doesn't have the vowels. And um, once you're fluent, it's not too much of a problem. Um, but initially it can be. So Hebrew is written without vowels. You need to know how to pronounce it in order to read it. And eventually, later after the time of the New Testament, because Hebrew was no longer the spoken... I mean, by the time of Jesus, Hebrew was nobody's mother tongue anymore. The street language in in um, uh, Israel at the time of Jesus was Aramaic. And Hebrew was only used in the context of worship. It's a bit like if you went to the Latin Mass... Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, even in Italy, and if you go to Rome in the 1700s, everybody speaks Italian, which is a kind of 
basically kind of a dialect of it, Latin, just like French and Spanish are, but it's quite different now. And Latin was only used in church and in the Vatican. Um, <clears throat> now imagine that all of a sudden people start forgetting how to speak Latin. You've got all these Latin texts. But, you can't, but actually in order to read them, you have to know what the words say. You have to know the language in order to read it because you can't just read it because there are no const you know, you wouldn't know how to pronounce it because there are no vowels. Um, that's the challenge. And by, you know, by the time of Jesus, people still knew because they knew Hebrew because they used it in the synagogue and in the temple. After the temple was destroyed and the people were scattered up in the second century, uh, the Romans uh, expelled all Jews from, from uh, Israel after yet another rebellion. There was a real danger that the whole language would be forgotten. If the language is forgotten, then you can't read the Bible anymore. And so they added vowel sounds. Uh, to the uh, to the language, so you could read it even if you don't know the language very well. By this time, nobody remembered, but nobody would pronounce the name of God, because the second commandment says, "You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God." And best way is not to misuse something is not to use it at all. You know, don't break this. Okay, well, I'll just leave it in the cupboard and it will never break. Of course, that's not what God meant because he wanted us to call upon his name. But by this time, they every time they put in the vowels, they didn't put in the vowels for the name of God. They put in the vowels for the word Adonai, Lord. Suggesting that every time you see the name of God, you do not read it out. You read the word Adonai instead. And so even, and this was a custom already before the time of Jesus because the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is a couple of centuries before the birth of Jesus, um, translated it every time the name of God came up, they just wrote Kyrios, Lord. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this is clearly the custom. And so that's why we have Lord for the name of God. So respecting the pre-New Testament custom of supplying the word Lord in its place, but to distinguish it from other uses of when the actual word Lord is used, it's written in capital letters, so they can say, okay, it translates now the name of God as opposed to literally meaning Lord as in master. So when was um, God's name as, as Yahweh used? Mm. Well, the, the custom then had become that only the high priest would use it on the Day of Atonement. Ah, right, okay. Um, which is not what God wanted. Uh, he revealed his name to Moses. Well, yes, I was thinking it was that far. Yes, but it was a, it was a much later custom, because we know this because you know, like these Psalms, they use it. Yes. But somewhere between the writing of the old last books of the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, it just stopped being used in everyday language. I mean, there are Jews are very very careful. Devout Jews are very very careful about the name of God. So you will find that they will. You know, I learned this when I was at training as a religious studies teacher. So if you've got any Jewish students in your class and you're teaching Judaism, you must never write the word God on a whiteboard, on a piece of paper, because the moment you do, that becomes sacred. You can't, you're not supposed to rub it out. So you write G-D so that you can... And there's a... Um, we, we, we're, we're not approaching the psalm very, <laughs> very quickly here, but just as an, as an interesting thing, um, this, this has led to kind of all sorts of um, unintended but quite fruitful consequences. Uh, so 
whenever, for example, there was a uh, the name name of God or the word God was written on a piece of paper, you were not allowed to destroy it. And so, but then you say, well, you accumulate lots of bits of paper as a result of papyrus or. And so, for in places like Cairo, the 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 big synagogues, they would have a storeroom where people would just take their scraps of paper, anything that had the name of God on it or the word God on it, and they take it to the synagogue and they just put it in this in this storage room and they just throw it. It's basically a bin, but it would be kept there forever because you're not allowed to destroy it. And this this word this place room is called a Geniza. And in the late 19th, early 20th century, a couple of enterprising uh, British ladies went to the Cairo Geniza and they persuaded the, the, the synagogue authorities to let them take the empty out the Geniza and take the whole lot back to Cambridge University. It's full of receipts and letters and, you know, somebody said, may God bless you in a letter, off it went, or, you know, I swear by God that I will pay back this debt, off it went. And scholars have spent a century now going trawling through this, and it's an absolute treasure trove of finding out ev- about the everyday lives of Jewish people in Cairo <laughs> over the centuries, just because of this custom, full of all these sort of you know all kinds of things, uh, seemingly. But anyway, that's done now. No, no, this the past custom. It was yeah. stopped. No, I'm not saying it's been stopped, but that was you know it's, it's much less of an issue now because. Right. But <clears throat> all the same. That's why we have the Lord. So every time you see Lord capital letters, we're talking about God addressed by his name. It's so like when he says Psalm uh, 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit yes. on my right hand. Yes. It's Yahweh says to my master. Yeah. The Lord says to my Lord. Um, <clears throat> let's get back to the psalm. Anything else that you spot? Saying that he's going to be awake all the time. Yes, yeah, God is God is awake. And never never um, sleep. Yeah, so that's that's the detail. Are there any any one other thing I think that was is interesting that there is this sort of uh, it's a psalm of motion. I look to the hills for where does my help come, and this um, you know it, that's how where it begins and it ends with. Going, coming forth, and you know, coming in, going out. This is a, this is the idea that there's, um, and you're in the out, you know, you're outdoors, sun, sun and moon, hills, um, and whether whether it has to do with pilgrimage or something, or some, something else. This idea that you're you're out and about, which is, I think, it, it's not massively significant, but I think, I think it is significant. So those are the some of the key themes that are are uh, within the the psalm. So, let's begin. It begins with a rhetorical question. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Um, from where does my help come? Now, so you look up to the hills. Now, what does this uh, signify? There are two different ways that this has been understood. One is uh, the one that seems to me obvious, almost obvious, that you look up, up to the mountains. Mm-hmm. And, and again, the word here, uh, is is this, you know the, tra- the traditional translations I lift up my eyes to the hills, but the word that is translated as hills just means mountains. There isn't a distinction. Um, <clears throat> which mountains? Which hills? And of course, in if you think of the Old Testament, you know, 
Tell me about mountains and Old Testament and Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai? Yeah. yeah. Other mount? Um, oh. You'll kick yourself when I say it. Yeah. Zion. Oh, Mount yeah. Zion. Yeah. Um, so you've got Mount Sinai, and what is what is Mount Sinai? What's the significance of Mount Sinai? In within the kind of I lift up my eyes to the hills kind of way. That was God's residence, well, where God appeared. Yeah, yeah God yes. came down to Mount Sinai, and God said, yes. God dwelt at Mount Sinai yes. um, and met Moses there. Yes. Mount Zion, what's the significance of Mount Zion? What's a mount on Zion? Where is Zion? Nearer Jerusalem. Nearer than that. It is Jerusalem. It is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion, or one of the, and and specifically the temple. This is the Temple Mount, which is also known as Mount Moriah. What happened on Mount Moriah? Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. So the same mountain where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac later became the place where sacrifices were made in the temple. Uh, Zion. These are the hills. So these are this. If this is how we look at it, these. The, I look up to the hills. Why do I look? Why do I look to the hills? Or mountains. That's where God resides for us. And yeah. and this is not just an Old Testament idea in the sense that this is a common way of looking at the world in that region, also amongst the pagans. And uh, I'll just give you one example. And this is something I learned quite recently um, from a uh, <coughs> a. Um, Professor of uh, Old Testament, um, uh, uh, who uh, I read, uh, um, who wrote an essay, and this is a close to my heart because it was when my father turned seventy, uh, his collection of essays was put together as a book to kind of celebrate his seventieth birthday. And a friend of his, who's a professor of Old Testament, wrote an essay uh, for that book, uh, and it was about the building of the temple. Uh, in Jerusalem and how that was a controversial thing to do when Solomon built a temple. It was a controversial thing to do and you can see that sometimes like in the Psalms, you know, when there's, you know, you know, our God is in the heavens, you know, he does not live in houses, in, in houses built by hands. So there's that kind of dialogue within the Bible itself. Why is that? Well, <clears throat> not only for the Israelites, but also for uh, some of the other uh, peoples in that region, um, the well, let's say, let's say if you go to the pagan world, Canaanite pagan world, there were kind of there were these different different kind of gods, and there was a the chief god, and then there were kind of uh, lesser gods, and the chief god lived in a tent on a on a mountain, and the lesser gods lived in houses built by men, mm-hmm. and so when when Israel, God says, you know, built had a, had Israel build a tent. For his dwelling place, and then Solomon said, "So let's build a let's. You know, I want to build God a proper temple." It's like, well, that's coming down a step. That's like a demotion. You're bringing God down from his heavenly heights to the, in that kind of cultural world. Doesn't mean that that's what Solomon meant, but that's how it might have come across. Um, and so this idea that God lives, it God, God dwells on the mountains. As opposed to down amongst us, is is indicates his majesty and his 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 honor. In that again, in that world. Now this is much later on, 
this is centuries later, but that, that kind of language, there's a steady connection, a tradition goes all the way back to that time. Well, I suppose mountains give, give the imprint of absolute strength, mm. and they're yes, towering above, above yes. you, so they're up high. Yes, they are. So they're Sometimes covered in fog yes. as well. Sorry? They're covered in fog at the top as well. They're often they are, yes, so they're, yeah, they're clouds. Like yeah, if you cloud comes around. Yes, yeah. So if you you know, if you go to somewhere like um, like I I spent as you know years um in East Africa, you've got two great mountains in East mm-hmm. Africa, you've got the Kilimanjaro and you've got the I've got Mount Kenya. Mm-hmm. If you like to see the peak of either of them You've got to go halfway up. No. You have to, no. You've got to get up really early. Oh. So when sun the sun rises you can see the whole mountain. But by 10 in the morning, they're covered by clouds. Oh, right. Just because of the way it works. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> and, uh, but, so you could look at this, you know, I look up to the hills, look up to where God is. Mm-hmm. But of course, hills and mountains, as you said, they are, they are symbols of strength. Mm-hmm. So if you want to build a fortress, where would you put it? On you put it on the mountain. Mm-hmm. Or you might build a city in a place that is surrounded by mountains on all sides. So they are symbols of strength. So you look up to the hills, for where does my help come? And the answer is not in the hills and the mountains. Our help comes from the Lord. Who made heaven and earth? Now there's a third possibility, and this is some, I hadn't thought of this myself, but one quite famous um, living Old Testament scholar suggested that actually you look to the hills. If you think of your you're kind of traveling you're on your way to um on your way to Jerusalem as a pilgrim and you're surrounded by all these hills and mountains, they are a a potential threat. You're walking Mm -hmm. the valleys because that's where your caves are. That's where, that's where your bandits are going to come from. You know, this, and, and often if you have, you know, you might have clouds at the top or you might have storms and and Mm -hmm. thunder and lightning, all that kind of stuff. They're actually threatening things. Mm -hmm. I look to the hills like, gosh, you know, who's going to help me? You know, this is a, this is a place of, 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 of danger or threat. I'm not personally that convinced by that within this context, but that's a possibility as well. I, I see more as like, you know, I look to the hills, I look at all these solid objects, yeah. these things that are immovable. You know, when Jesus, if you have faith, you know, you can move mountains. The whole point is, he's not actually saying, test your faith by telling mountains to move. This like, these are immovable objects of enormous strength. And if you want to be somewhere really secure, that's where you want to be. I look to the hills, to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Not there. Not there. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He's made them. And so here we have the second theme of which is that the, that our help comes from the Lord, uh, who the uh, Lord who is the creator of all things. Remember when Jonah was on his ship to Tarshish, escaping from the Lord, and God threw this storm against the ship. And Jonah went to sleep. He thought he'd just hide and went to sleep in the belly of the ship. And the captain comes and wakes him up. He said, "What are you doing? Pray to God." I said, and then he says, "Well, I, I worship, I, my, I worship the Lord, who created all things." And they kind of all look at him. It's like, "You crazy man! What have you done? If 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 your God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and the sea, and you're trying to hide from him by going on the seas." It's a bit like you know you're you're trying to hide from the uh, hide from the uh, air traffic control by by going on the tarmac mm. of of the air. You know that, that's the last place you want to be. 
God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Well, if he's, if, if he's the maker of heaven and earth and he controls all creation and he's my help, there can be no greater security and strength. Because if, you know, all the threats against me come from within creation, and if the maker of creation is my helper, then I'll be fine. And this is one of the things that I think it's, sometimes we, we might be tempted to kind of skip over these words like help really quickly. Uh, <clears throat> but we mustn't. Who's the first person who's mentioned as a helper in the Bible? Eve. Correct, mm -hmm. Eve. Eve is created to be Adam's helper. helper. And in since especially the 20th century, many women have bristled against this idea, at this idea. Uh, you know, Adam's the chief and Eve's just the helper, makes her the maid. But the thing about this is that Who's, who, who is most commonly referred to as a helper in the Bible? God. God. So yes, so in the New Testament, yes, he, the Holy Spirit is, you know, is, is referred to as helper or advocate. You know, there are various different translations of it. But the, the one who is most commonly called helper in the Old Testament is God himself. God refers to himself as Israel's helper. And here he says, my help comes from the Lord. So if Eve is called Adam's helper, that's hardly a, a slight on her, given that God himself styles himself as a helper. It's divine work, not, not enslaved work, or you know, it, it doesn't make her a maid uh, or, or a subservient creature, but actually makes her crucial and necessary. And uh, we all know that this is the case. You, know, you don't have to live very long to realize that actually men and women need each other. Um, <clears throat> so my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So this takes us right to the, um, uh, art the, the creed and the first article of the creed. And um, I, I, almost, um, I, 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 I almost asked you to bring your catechisms with you, but I, I shan't. I'll just read to you. So listen to the explanation of the creed in the small catechism. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Straight from the sun. What is this? I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears and all my limbs, my reason and all my senses, and still looks after them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals and everything I own. Here's a key point. He richly and daily supplies me with everything I need to support this body and life. He shields me from all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. Where did Luther get that, those words from, I wonder? Guards and protects me from all evil. And then he says, all this he does only out of purely, does out of purely, far, all of this he does out of pure fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this I owe it to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. So God is our creator, and because he's our creator, I look, he has, he's the source of all good things, and I look to him for all good things. And the part of this is, is not just that he's made me and he's made other things, but because he is my maker, he's also the one to whom I look for protection and help. 
And so next time we profess the creed in church, you can think of that. I believe in one God, Father, maker of heaven and earth, all things visible and invisible. And all things are his, and all things therefore also exist and work by his authority and permission. So those things that are contrary and, and adversarial to me are also created by God, and if they are arrayed against me, they do so by his permission, and therefore he ultimately remains in control even when I am in danger. As we will see as the psalm goes on. So the creation, you know, the, the article of creation, or the, the, you know, the, the article of faith on creation, doesn't just talk about our origins. It talks also about our present hope and our present security. God remains our creator, and he, therefore, he, he, he's the one to whom I look for all things, all good things. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You could, in a sense, you could stop that. The stop, psalm could stop there, and the rest of the psalm simply now spells this out. And the key word now that we will see is the one that uh, Carol already mentioned, keep keeper. Mm. Shamar is the word. Um, the, the entirely regular verb. He will not let your foot be moved. This idea of your foot moving, meaning what? It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he, he casts your feet in cement or concrete. Rather, what is the moving of feet here? Do you think, what do you think it refers to? He thinks that if he keeps them from moving. He's safeguarding yourself. So what is what kind of movement? I think he's talking about faith and trust. Yes, but yeah. what you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking really literally now. Oh, literally. Literally. So when says he will let your foot be moved. Moved to, to know the right thing to do for oh. God. No, more literal from than one that. One path to another. Mm, I think you're being you're you're being too complicated. Hmm. Well, moves from a standing position to a moving position. I think it's, it's more likely to be like a move in the sense of like uh, when you're on unsteady ground, slip or kind of shape, be shaken. So I think, Barbara, your Bible probably translates it as, um, yes, uh, it says, he will not let your foot slip in verse 3, yeah, I think, right, yeah. um, or be kind of shaken. Like there's a, in, in, in Isaiah, um, is it Isaiah 50? I can't remember now which chapter. In, in around the f chapter fifty-ish of Isaiah, uh, though the mountains be moved, and hills be shaken, my steadfast love will not move. So it's this idea of instability. That's the idea of the movement, the instability. So if you think, again, think of an ancient footpath. You know, no tarmac, no no concrete, or, uh, or, or in the, it's just you're just walking on things. I mean, I, I remember I mentioned Mount Kenya earlier. I've climbed it a couple of times, not not right to the top. Well, he's got sort of different peaks, and I, you have to be a, a kind of um, a proper rock climber to go to the very tallest peak. But I've been to the highest peak that you can walk up to without needing any equipment. And just below it, you've got a scree slope. Mm. And you've what? got a, a scree slope, mm. which is so like a half a mile, basically a very steep slope, and it's all the rocks that have fallen off mm. on the top. And it's a right old pain to climb up because mm. it's very steep. You could kind of lean forward and put your foot, your hand down mm. without falling over. But it's completely unstable. 
Right. It's easy to come down. You just go on your haunches and you push back and go row down, literally, mm-hmm. and just slide the whole way down and hope that you, you don't hit anybody with rocks below you. Mm-hmm. But going up, because you never know when you put your foot down, is it going to stay there or is it going to give, a, give away under you? Mm-hmm. You feel like you've done a half day's work when you got to the top of that bit. Yeah. 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 Um, and it says here, no, he will not let your foot be moved. Your foot will remain steady under you. You will not slip. You will not strain your sprain your ankle. You will not kind of find yourself sliding around. You will not be shaken. He who keeps you will not slumber. So how, how is that part of the same sentence? Here's the first one: keeps. The keep means. It means to guard. Or be, you know, on on watch. It's the sort of thing that a guard does at a gate or a sentry does on the walls or outside the, on the edges of the camp or in the trenches. The idea of guarding. Uh, a guard, keep, watch over. A watchman's job. So God is my helper. And what does he do? He watches over me. He guards me. And that's what the keeping. So the Lord bless you and keep you. Is it's, it's the idea is, is, is watchfulness for the purpose of protection. So the key theme of this psalm is, I'm, you know, I need help. What's the help I need? I need protection. And, G, and God is my, the Lord, Yahweh, is my protector. We'll come back to the, uh, the identity of the Lord at the end of, this, uh, end of our study. So he who, so think of a God or a, or a sentry. <clears throat> what did the British Army do to sentries that fell asleep in the First World War? Shoot them. Yep, they got shot. Mm. Why? Because they would have let the guard that would they'd have let the enemy through if they were asleep. And their function of duty. Yes. Yeah. And which risked the lives of all. That's oh, right. And so, if you went to sleep on sentry duty, yeah. you basically put your sleep over the lives of your comrades. And that was tantamount, you know, that was a capital offence. Yeah. So if you fell asleep on guard duty, you could be, sh- you, you were liable to be shot. If you mm-hmm. were missing on guard duty, you were liable to be shot. Mm-hmm. Because the lives of others depending on it. Mm-hmm. And the, the trouble, of course, is, and, and I, I say this from personal experience, staying awake on guard duty in the middle of the night when you're already very tired mm-hmm. is actually very, very hard. Yes. I'm not the only person to have literally fallen asleep while standing up. I fell asleep. Mm-hmm. I was standing there. Next thing I find my, I find myself on my knees because I'd fallen asleep, even though I was standing up. Mm-hmm. People used to say, oh, I could fall asleep. You know, you could fall asleep on your feet. It can happen. Yeah, yeah it's very painful, <laughs> very, very difficult. But you have to stay awake because otherwise there is no protection. The enemy can come in uh, and you're there to mm-hmm. guard, to guard against that. And... Now what we what we're told here is that he who keeps you, who's that? Who's the one who's the one who's guarding? Who who's the one who keeps me? God. God himself, Yahweh, the Lord. Yeah. He will not slumber. And here we come that repetition, the parallelism. You find this all uh, often in the Psalms, this parallelism. You say one thing, you say it again, and the second time it kind of gives gives you more information. So, he who keeps you will not slumber, doze off. Behold, he who keeps Israel, so that's the you. This is not a 
I look to the hills, it's not just me in isolation from everybody else. I speak, the I here is actually an Israelite speaking on behalf of all Israel. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So he doesn't doze off and doesn't go to sleep. He stays alert. God is always watching. When I was a child, um, there was a poster at, at our summer, at the place where we spent our summers. Uh, we'd go upstairs or where our beds were, and, and there was a poster on the wall. And he had a picture of a sunset. And the words in English, there's the first phrase in English I learned. I, I learned in English first, and then many years later I learned how to pronounce it correctly. Sleep in peace, God is awake. Sleep in peace. God is awake. It's not a book. It's not a. It's not a phrase from the Bible. It's just no. something. But this is what the psalmist says here. You can sleep in peace. God is awake. God does not go awol. He doesn't doze off. He doesn't decide to take himself off to sleep. He doesn't let his attention wander. He is constantly alert in the job of guarding and protecting you. And the New Testament speaks of, of this protection. It doesn't just involve us being kind of in being surrounded by God, but God, God's protection and guardian, guard, guarding of us also extends to supplying us with the protection that we need. And I'm speaking specifically of the, the armor of God in Ephesians 6. So think of the armor of God in Ephesians. Just turn to Ephesians 6 uh, very briefly, if you will, in the New Testament. Carol, could you read from from verse 10 uh, to verse uh, 18? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your lawns with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, Besides all these, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Thank you. So you can see there that you have this defensive equipment so you can stand firm against all harm or spiritual danger that's the key point here so when we say the lord will keep you a guard us he doesn't just stand there but he also equips us so that we are safe he puts gives to us this armor with which we are with with which we are protected and this armor consists of his the spiritual weapons the spiritual armor of uh, God's word, of prayer, the gospel itself, salvation, and so on. So this, 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 uh, 
guardianship or this this sort of centrifuge work of God of keeping us. Lord bless you and keep you uh, is that He protects us not simply on His own somewhere, but He protects us by supplying us what we what we need for our protection. And then it, it, and and that now this this you know this stepwise argument continues. The Lord Yahweh is your keeper. Next step. The Lord Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. And the right hand again. So he's kind of again think of of uh, tropical climates, where you know if you, if you've been to hot countries, you don't have to go very far. You know, get as far as southern France, Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, and you know that the midday sun. And early afternoon sun is brutal, and one reason why those cultures often they have a siesta is because nobody wants to be out and about in that heat. You're fine, you know. You, you can go to bed late and get up early because you get to sleep in the middle of the day too. You know, um, and the sun can be it's dangerous. And uh, if you are, I mean, this is one why why uh, people in those regions have darker skin. Because it protects you, but even if you have dark, really dark skin, um, you can still get sunburned. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so, you need, what you need, you need shade. And trees provide shade. And if you are wealthy enough, you can buy yourself a parasol. If you're really wealthy, you can get it by a slave who will hold a parasol over you, or have a servant who does that, as people would have done. Mm. And who is the servant who? Holds the shade over us. Yahweh Himself, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. That's kind of a bit of what's known as hyperbole. I mean, you, you don't get sun. You, you can't get moonstruck literally. But see, you know, he he provides you shade, even if even if the moon were to be a threat. Even even that, he will shade you from. I read a wonderful 19th century uh, commentary, which is explaining at great length how the rays, you know, in, in tropical climates, clearly this person had never been to the tropics, and in the tropical climates, even, uh, even the, um, the moon's rays can be dangerous and can cause a dangerous inflammation of the brain. <laughs> I don't, we don't think that anymore. Uh, but uh, <coughs> the idea is this is total protection. So even if even if you're worried about the moon, he will shade you from even that. So again, here we see, you know, we think of service as being a demeaning thing. If you're a servant, as, as that's a humble and 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 demeaning occupation as opposed to being served. Well, God doesn't think so. He's happy to hold a parasol over us. Because what do you what his his concern is for our well-being. And it goes on to say, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Old translations that he will keep your soul. But soul, the primary meaning of soul in the Old Testament is life. The fact of being alive. Not some substance distinct from our body. The, the idea that there's a body and then there's a soul and they're two, things, two different substances is a very it's a pagan Greek idea. It's not really a biblical idea. Body and soul means the physical self. And the, and the life that animates it. And again, I would like you to uh, refer, uh, I'd like to refer you to 
what we uh, read in the small catechism. This is the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. We pray in this petition in summary that our Father in heaven would deliver us from every kind of evil of body and soul, property and honour. God will keep us from all evil, all bad things. In English, the word evil kind of has this uh, connotation, this sense of moral badness. But the, it doesn't mean that here. It, just, it, all, it, it means all things that are adversary to us, adversarial to us. Um, whether it's moral or it's just physical. Sun, you know, heat of the sun or, or lack of food. All evil, body and soul, property and, and, and honour, reputation. And he says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will guard your life. Whatever is contrary to you, anything that threatens you, the Lord will guard you against it. And it's summarized in verse 8. The Lord will guard your, keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So wherever you go, wherever you come from, whenever, um, there's a wonderful little reference in one of the um, in an early Christian writing. For this is about just before the year 200, by um, the first great theologian of the church who writes in Latin, uh, who um, whose name has just gone out of my head for some reason. He'll come back, um, and he's writing uh, in defence of a soldier who had become a Christian, the Roman army. He'd become a Christian, and he refused to take part uh, in and to honour the kind of pagan symbols of the of the army, and got into, got himself into into a lot of trouble. And Tertullian, thank you, Tertullian of Carthage, uh, who's a lawyer and layman, but he wrote some theology. He wrote this book called the uh, or the Crown of Christians. And, and where he explains the, the things, why Christians do not honour pagan symbols and what our own symbols are. And he's got chapter, one chapter is on the sign of the cross. In those, so Christians were making the sign of the cross already in the second century. Um, usually not the big sign of the cross that people now make, so from the, uh, but a small sign of the cross uh, on the head or on the, over the heart. And said so the Christians make the sign of the cross when? When they wake up in the morning, you get out of bed, and when they go to sleep, mm-hmm. when they sit down to eat, when they get out, get up from the table, when they cl- when they clothe themselves, when they take off their clothes, when they leave the house, when they come back into the house. The point being that they kind of mark themselves with the sign of Christ at every point of the day, at every change in their lives. Um, so when you get out of the bed, you ded- you dedicate your the day to God. To Jesus, and when you go to bed, you you ask for God's protection in the name of Jesus upon yourself. When you leave the house, when you go, when you're going out, when you're coming in, and so this psalm, then this verse of the psalm, is is commonly, including in our church, read at the baptism at a baptism. May the Lord keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. You are now his. You've been baptized into Christ. You're now God's. May he keep your going out and your coming in, whether it's leaving the house and coming back home, whether it's uh, whether you are going in and out of this life itself from this time forth and forevermore. You might think, well, always, more than always, eternally. And this brings us back now to the word Lord. Who is Yahweh? 
Who bears that name? God. Jesus. Are you guessing or are you telling? Well, it, it is, isn't it? Tell me why Jesus. God. Well, he's the son of God. There's actually a Bible passage that tells us. Christ was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. What is the name that is above every name? Jesus. No, he's been given to Jesus. What is the name that has been given to Jesus that is above every name? Yahweh. Yahweh. That's the name that is above every name. It's been given to Jesus. So we can now read as Christians, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus we can now, and the ascension of Jesus, we can now read this psalm and every time you see Lord, put in Jesus. Jesus will keep you going out of your coming from this time forth and forevermore. My help comes from Jesus. Jesus is your keeper. Jesus is your shade on your right hand. Jesus will keep you from all evil. So, in the light of, or in, in, uh, in consequence of Jesus' death, obedience, death, resurrection and ascension, we can say with conf confidence that he himself will personally guard us from all evil. And he has therefore, he has given us, sent us, he's a different word that's used for the Holy Spirit being the helper. That means helper in the sense of a, a spokesperson or an advocate or a defender. But nevertheless, Jesus has sent us his Holy Spirit and he has given us his, the armour of God so that he keeps us from all evil. And all evil of body and soul, property and honour. So every aspect of your earthly lives, but more than that, not just your earthly lives. All good things come from God, all protection comes from God. In the name of Jesus we can call on it and, and trust it. But he gives us something far better than just keeping our life on earth smooth. He will allow things to befall us that are adversarial to us, that are difficult. He will allow us to suffer. But he even takes that and uses that for our protection so that we might not, our life might not be limited to this life, that he will keep our coming in and going out, going out and our coming in, to include going out of this world and coming into the new world. That's the great beauty uh, of this psalm. So it, it's our kind of comfort and protection in this life, but it's also our comfort and protection in the hour of death. You know, you can, lying on your deathbed, you know, I look up to this, where, where does my hell come from? I'm, I'm sinking into the valley of the shadow of death. I look up to the hills from the bottom of the valley of the shadow of death. From where does my hell come from? My help comes from Jesus, the Lord who made heaven and earth. And he will guard me from all evil. And he will watch over me from this time forth and forevermore. Mm. It's a wonderful, wonderful psalm. And it's not for nothing that is very, very popular mm. amongst Christians. And there's some beautiful settings of it. I, 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 I toyed with the idea of getting there's a, there's a beautiful psalm setting of an, of an Anglican chant um, for a choir of this psalm. Uh, but um, I, I, di um, I didn't have time to. Uh, to find it uh, for this, but uh, it, is, it is there are lots of beautiful settings of this psalm uh, because of 
of the um, appropriateness of you know the way that it, it so beautifully accompanies our lives in various settings. So if you think in terms of pilgrimage, you know we are we are all pilgrims, just like Israel was a pilgrim towards the promised land. We are all pilgrims going to heading towards our heavenly home uh, to the to the mountain of God, Mount Zion, heavenly Zion. Um, so that we can take this on our on our kind of daily pilgrimage as our psalm. My family, it was always a custom that when people were going on a long journey, and especially when we were living kind of at one point, my family was spread over three continents, you know, there's a lot of travel involved. So on the evening before travel, we would all pray this psalm together. Okay. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming from this time forth and forevermore. And that's not quite taking an hour and a half, but it's taken taking plenty of time. So we we have some time. If you have any any further thoughts or questions about this psalm, I, I hope I hope that's been helpful for you, so that when we come to sing it on Sunday. I've got a question. Yes. It won't be necessarily from me, but I can see if I was talking about this to Freya, I'd have a question from her. Yes. If we're saying that God will protect us from all physical harm as well, how is it that people get stabbed? that are Christian, mm. um, how does God, uh, why is God not protecting them from that? That's a good question. It's a question that always comes up. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it does. Um, <clears throat> I mean, because the young girl that was recently stabbed, her mother, is it her mother who's a Christian? She herself was. Yes, she yes. was. So I know I would get that question from Freya. Well, what happened there then? Good. Is um, there an answer? Yes, I think there is. Uh, first of all, um, let me let me give you a long answer. Okay, this long answer involves uh, going back seventy years to Oxford, where C.S. Lewis, famous C.S. Lewis, gathered about him as this sort of uh, um, uh, brilliant, talented, gifted young men who were you know writing their doctorates or just had finished their doctorates, and they had this. A philosophy club that they used to meet and they used to write essays for each other and they would discuss them. And one of them was a gentleman called Anthony Flew, who became quite a well-known philosopher in due course. And Anthony Flew, unlike C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, Anthony Flew was an atheist. And he wrote this very stimulating, very interesting essay um, where he essentially said, accused Christians or religious people generally of using words in a way that meant that they became completely meaningless. So, you know, if I said to you, for example, that um, uh, you know, this, this object here is a mug, but also this object is a mug, and the thing that I'm wearing on top of my shirt is a mug, and we're sitting on mugs in a building that is a mug, then if I say, well, tell me about a mug, well, that word has no meaning at all. It doesn't tell me anything. Because if everything is a mug, then nothing is a mug. Right? Mm -hmm. In other words, you need to, in order to know what a thing means, you need to know not only what it is, but also what it isn't. And you have to be able to show what would make something not a mug. Mm -hmm. So if it's, if it's round and doesn't hold any liquid, can't hold liquid, well, that's not a mug. If it doesn't have a handle, it's not a mug, it's something else. And if you fit inside, it's no longer a mug, it's something else. So, so we need to know what both what a thing is and also what it isn't. 
you know, to understand it. And said, the way that Christians and religious people speak, for example, of God's love, is such that it means nothing. And he gives the example. Imagine a, child, a mother walking with a son, and a car swings by, and misses a child by an inch. And the mother says, thank you, God, for your love in protecting my son. Because nothing happened. But imagine that this car swings by and doesn't miss the child, but hits the child, but the child survives. And the mother says, thank you, God, for your love in protecting my child so that even though he was injured, he didn't die. Or imagine the third scenario where the mother is walking with the child and the car hits the child, the child hits the is hit by the car, the child dies, and mother says, thank you, God, for your love in taking my son to heaven. Mm. He said, it, and, and, and Anthony Flew said, well, car misses the child, car injures the child, car kills the child. Every time the mother says, this shows that God loves my child, well, that word love no longer means anything. Because whatever happens, you'll say God, is, God loves my child. Right? And we say, you know, so back to your question. God guards me from, you know, I thank God for his protection because I haven't been stabbed. But if I'm stabbed, so well, I, I thank, well, what do I thank God for exactly? We will have eternal life. Exactly. I mean, now, that's... yes. Now, Anthony who had a point, but he missed a point as well. Mm-hmm. And this is, and this is where we come back to your question. How can we say that God guards us when Christians get stabbed or, you know, I pass these things. How can we say that God gives us our daily bread, but then when there's a famine, Christians die just as well as everybody else? Or there's a war and Christians aren't protected from harm. Because it says God will guard me from all evil. And all the, both the evils and the good things of this life and this world are all temporary. So if you are protected from all evil so that you're not stabbed, that just means you live another day. But that's all you promised. Yeah. You know, if somebody gets cancer and we pray, God, please heal this person, and the cancer goes away, that just means that that person will die of something else another day. Yeah. This life is a prolonged death, I'm afraid. Or it's a delayed death. We live in expectation of death. And death is simply deferred and delayed every time I eat, every time I get well from a cold or my infection heals or, you know, the the violence passes me by. And God's love is not shown chiefly in my having food and drink and house and home, although those things are all gifts from God, as is protection from violence and, and other harm. God's love is shown to us chiefly in that God gave his son for me so that when the inevitable happens to me and I die, he will still rescue me. He will rescue me from all evil. And so we are not promised protection from all the harms in this life. Just like in Psalm 91 when we say, you know, you know, those, a thousand may fall your right hand and ten thousand your left. It will not come near you. Well, Surely that's not true. You know, you go to Syria and Christians were killed in Syria just as well as Muslims. Or Gaza. It's not just the Muslim Palestinians that are dying, it's all the Christian Palestinians that are dying in Gaza or where or Ukraine. Because it's not talking about temporary evils only, but ultimately of ultimate evil. And so God this is why we seek and this is where Anthony flew and all the Got it wrong. 
You want to know that what, how can a Christian woman say God loves me whether my son misses is missed by the car is injured by the car killed by the car because Jesus died for my child. Whatever happens, we will receive the ultimate good. If you live another day, thanks be to God. It's a gift, but He's got a much bigger gift for you. And you know, it's a bit like saying. The state is there to protect citizens. Well, how can you say the state is there to protect citizens when it collects taxes? I mean, exactly how is the state protecting me by taking my money? Well, that small loss of money through taxation is part of the greater protection that the state affords, which is paid for by the taxes by giving roads and hospitals and schools and armies and police. And in the same way, God allows things to happen to our lives which can be difficult and hard, including loss of loved ones and loss of our very lives. But you listen to the mother of that girl who was stabbed to death. She didn't say, oh no, I used to believe in God, but now I've given up on him. No, not at all. She suffers the terrible, uh, the terrible thing of a loss of a child with hope. We do not, we, we weep as, not as those who have no hope. No one can harm that girl anymore, ever, in any way. And if she had lived another 60 years and had all the delights and joys of this world, well and good, and praise be to God, but she has in fact been given a shortcut to even greater joys. Mm -hmm. So we are winners. Mm -hmm. Anthony Flew got it right. Christians will claim that everything is, you know, that, you know, it's heads we, it's not heads we tail, uh, heads we win, tails we lose. Heads we win, tails we win. Mm -hmm. We win at every turn because Jesus has already won the victory. So answer your question. Yeah, that's to me. <laughs> I don't yes. know how I would quite explain it to Freya. By talking um, about Jesus. Well, yes. That's the answer. Yes. You know, you say the ultimately, yes. we have been given a hope beyond this life. Yes. And God allows things to happen to us that are good and oh, uneasy and hard. Done. I have said, yes. And, but he does all of this. Yes. You know, there's that phrase I, I've referred to a few times, that the prayer uh, that got watered down in, in our latest hymn book, Pray for Persecuted Christians, where um, it, the, the prayer used to say, and it ought to say, that they, that, uh, they pray for persecuted Christians, that they accept their afflictions mm. as manifestations of your fatherly love. Mm. That when you suffer, you say, thank you, God, for giving me this, because I know that you're giving it to me out of love. In the way that I, I know a family um, in another country um, where and the, the, the parents and their grandparents many times over, but when they were bringing up their children, they were very quick uh, to discipline their children physically, very quick to give them a spanking from an early age. And they're still very, uh, very convinced that it was the right thing to do because if you start spanking your children when they're two years old and throwing their tantrums by the time you're four they've learned they become really and and then you can just be you know you can relax and and then you they've got the rest of their childhood enjoying their enjoying their love with their parents because they are all disciplined and ordered no we didn't bring our children up that way but they did not only that but they insisted that their children once they had been spanked would say thank you oh and the point wasn't wasn't cruel, to, but to yeah. say so that they would learn to know that I'm doing this because I care about you, not because mm -hmm. I don't care about you. I'm giving you this to you as a gift, mm -hmm. even though it feels terrible now. You're crying and you're hurting. I want mm -hmm. you to say thank you so that you realise 
I'm actually doing this for you, out of love for you, and I'm yeah. good. Now, I'm not, there's not, you know, we can have different opinions about whether that's wise or not, but that's the, this is how far, uh, Heavenly Father works. Yeah. He disciplines those whom he loves. Yeah. And, and that sometimes means that he takes away things that we think that we can't be without. Yeah. Because actually the one thing, there's only one thing that we can't be without, and that's Jesus. Yeah. And he, with Jesus, God himself. Everything else is negotiable. But we don't find it so. Yeah. We find that you know, we cling on to life, or we cling on to things that are dear to us. And sometimes God takes them away from us so that we may learn to trust in him alone. Mm-hmm. But this, is, this only makes sense if you have faith in Jesus. Yes. So that's, that's part of the answer to these yeah. questions. That yeah. If you trust Jesus, mm-hmm. if you know what Jesus has done for you, trust in him, then you know that you can trust God even when he seems mm-hmm. so incomprehensible. Yeah. And I'll be reading the book of Job again uh, the last oh, few days. Mm-hmm. You know, the Job's kind of ran- ranting mm-hmm. and railing against God, saying, how can you be treating me like this when I've done nothing wrong? Mm-hmm. And all the time you can see God saying, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's not why it's happening to you, because he's done something wrong. All his friends say, you must have done something wrong. God doesn't do this. God is just. And when he makes you suffer, it's because you've sinned and you need to repent. Mm-hmm. And they're both wrong. And they both get told off. So Job's friends are told, who told you what, what I was doing? Who gave you the permission to speak on my behalf? And to Job says, do I need to explain myself to you? Do I need your advice? Yeah. And we know God allows Job to suffer to stick one up to Satan. Yeah. He's actually using Job's suffering to mock Satan. Mm. It's a, an honour and a privilege. Mm. He just doesn't realise it. If he don't realise it, he says, oh, Look at me. God is willing to use me as a showpiece to show, show, you know, show, show Satan up. And if you think of it in those terms, you know, does God love me? How can God love you? Know, how can God do this to me? Loves me. Look to the cross. You cannot doubt God's love, and everything else then falls under that category. It's a good question. It's a very good question. Hey, we'll keep coming back. Oh, are you? Oh, yes, <laughs> but it gives us an opportunity to talk about yes, Jesus. Yes, that's the great thing. Oh, oh yes, there've been quite a few opportunities recently that uh, she said, "Why is that? What's, why? Why has that happened to him?" Mm. Um, we can't always answer. I mean, no, can't always answer. No, and we mustn't. We must refrain from trying to explain. Oh, you yes. know, we say everything happens for a reason, and and other yeah. things like that. Try not to say that. No, I normally say, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't know, but we don't need to know. No. Because we know a bigger truth already. Mm. And the bigger truth is this, that God loves us in Jesus. And these smaller truths, we don't always know the smaller bits. In the same, you know, I often use the example of a mobile phone. We all know the bigger truth. You press this thing, press that thing, you can make a phone call or send a message. There are lots of small truths of how touch screens work mm. or how circuits are connected in such a way that when you touch that bit of the glass and that bit of the mm. glass, a phone call is made. And we don't know those small... We don't, I don't understand those small truths, mm. but I don't need to. I know the bigger truth. Yeah. Press these buttons and I can talk to you. Talk to mm. another person or send a message to another person. And the bit is the big truth that matters more than the small truth. And we know the big truth. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's the big truth. The smaller truth of, well, why does God allow loved ones to die? Why does God allow hunger or war or things like that? I don't know. No. But I know the big one. Yeah. Okay. 
My mother used to say, if anyone was taken early, God needed them for some other purpose. I don't agree with that. God doesn't need us at all. Well, uh, God doesn't need us, but God might take... I mean, we don't know why people die at different ages. We don't yeah. know why some people sit in a care home for 20, 15 years yeah. in a chair and, and wish that they weren't alive anymore, yeah. and why some people die at birth and other people mm. you know, in the middle of in, in blooming childhood or youth or, and so on, all these different things. Some people mm. have easy life, some people have life. We don't know the answer to that, and we shouldn't try to give an answer to that. That's not our job. No. Yeah. Good. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful promises that we've had the privilege to study this uh, this afternoon, though, for that you have made yourself our helper, our protector, our keeper. Thank you for your great faithfulness. Help us always to be mindful, remain mindful of these your promises and, and seek them in Jesus so that we are not discouraged by the adver um, adversities and setbacks of our earthly lives, but rather always to trust that you will keep us from all evil, from body and soul, possessions and property, and that you will take us at the last from this valley of tears to yourself in heaven. To may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.